August the 13th, 2017, lecture discussion number 293 on the book of Romans, and we shall be continuing the ending of our latest foray through Genesis 2, 3, and 4. Some might object to the inclusion of Genesis 4. You might not think that I am doing Genesis 4. I am. Surreptitiously. I have told you the mark of Cain, and that Cain is being cursed from the earth, driven from the face of the ground. I haven't explored it as much as I have in the past this time, and I won't disagree with that. But we're going to, uh, there's still time for the comparison of Cain and Satan. So that yet, that, that is yet to be advanced, and again, time remains. The ending has not ended. We are in the ending. So where are we? What have we got left to do? We've got uh, Cain, obviously, uh, Job, the two trees, Ecclesiastes 3, 18 through 22, which is the discussion of uh, the immortality of animals, honeybees and dead lions, riddles and fiery serpents, bronze serpents and sheep and goats and golden calf and fatted calf, and other than that, we're almost done. And we're ready to move along to whatever awaits. And obviously, I have always intended to get to 300 lectures. I'm at 293. So I gotta stall seven more times here, and then I can move move away from it, irrespective of any continuity. So a lot of stalling coming. Where do we begin today? I suggest honeybees and dead lions, which is the typology of a Samson. Samson fits marvelously into Genesis three. And so it belongs here, to say the least, and I think it gives you powerful information as to what really happened in Genesis 3, specifically Genesis 3, 15 and 14. And I should say that the typologies of Samson are, uh, and, and typologies is correct, the typologies, the plural of Samson, multifaceted. It shifts and it is sometimes very hard for people to figure it out, and needlessly the case. It actually makes very good sense when you begin to explore on all sides of it, and you can see uh, how it forms together. But there's great difficulty uh, with Samson, and these are true, literally true accounts of Samson, and unraveling the meanings, I, I, won't, I won't cut it short, it is difficult. So last uh, Sunday, we pretty much left off with the Nazaritic vow. And it comes from the word Nazar. I'll get to that in a minute, but we won't spell it that way. That confuses people, even though it's appropriate. Nazaritic vow, or oath. But vow is actually the preferred. I use both. I'll explain why I use vow the most here in a minute. We've yet to establish its importance, even though we have addressed it, and how the oath forms the foundation to Samson's life and actions. In other words, if you're trying to understand Samson without understanding the law of the Nazarite, then you're going to run into difficulty. So it's a, it's a foundational piece. It's actually the corner, cornerstone. It dictates why he does what he does and what his, what his mother and father are doing. Its actions are involved with that vow. And that's where we're going to start today, at Numbers 6, 1 through 21. I can't read it all. I can't give it the time that it's required. Not today, maybe sometime next week. But we have to have it in order to move on to Judges 13 through 16. So, in other words, number 6 cannot be decoupled from Judges 13 through 16. So you find yourself reading Samson, 
then and you have you have uh, not first gone through number six, then your train isn't going very far. The law of the Nazarite is obviously a portrait of Christ. He is the Nazarite. He is the Nazarite. And you have to know that, of course, is why it's in Scripture. All of the Old Testament screams of Jesus Christ, testifies of him. And I should also mention that Samson, let me put this on the board really fast for the Internet audience. Uh, Samson's mother was one of the six barren women. There are six barren women in Scripture. Obviously, they form a whole. Sarah, you all know Sarah. Most know Rebecca. I'll just start with uh, Rachel, of course. And spell Rebecca in case you want to. Samson's mother is never identified by name, but she is one of the six barren women. Hannah, Samuel's mother. Samuel also a Nazarite. So I have a relationship between Samson and Samuel. Uh, Elizabeth. Of course, I'm going to tell you Mary, but Mary is not one of the six, the six barren women. I don't, I don't really call it the six barren women. I know that many do. I call it the seven miraculous births. And so, the miraculous birth, of course, is God Himself. So I have seven miraculous births that point to the, the miraculous birth. I have Nazarites or Nazaritic oaths that point to the Nazarite himself. So all of that there. Okay? Set that off to the side. I just wanted to give it to you so you knew. Numbers 6, 1 through 14. That's what we're reading right now. Is this going to be fun? No. Not fun. Is it going to be interesting? I hope so. But mostly when I do it, everybody is asleep by verse 2. Let's see if we can set a new record. The law of the Nazarite. I have in, in this Bible, I wrote above it, Samson, Samuel. To help me know that every time I'm dealing with Samson or Samuel, I have to come here. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When, when either a man or woman consecrates an offering, dedicates an offering, to take the vow of the Naz- Nazarite, to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and similar drink. He shall drink neither vinegar made from wine nor vinegar made from drink. Neither shall he drink any grape juice nor eat fresh grapes or raisins. So you got that so far? All the days of his separation. He shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine from seed to skin. All the days of the vow of his separation, no razor shall come upon his head until the days are fulfilled for which he separated himself to the Lord. He shall be holy. Then he shall let the locks of his hair of his head grow. All the days he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body. He shall not make himself unclean even for his father or his mother, for his brother or his sister when they die, because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of the separation he shall be holy to the Lord. And if anyone dies very suddenly besides him and he defiles his consecrated head, then he shall save his 
I'm sorry, he shall shave his head on the day of his cleansing. On the seventh day, he shall shave it. Then on the eighth day, he shall bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons to the priest to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And the priest shall offer one as a sin offering, the other as a burnt offering, and make atonement for him because he sinned in regard to the corpse. And he shall sanctify his head that same day. He shall consecrate to the Lord the days of his separation and bring a male lamb in its first year as a trespass offering because the former days shall be lost because his separation was defiled. Now, this is the law of the Nazarite. When the days of his separation are fulfilled, he shall be brought to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and he shall present his offering to the Lord, one male lamb in its first year, without blemish, as a burnt offering, one ewe lamb, female lamb, in its first year, without blemish, as a sin offering, one lamb without, and one ram without blemish, as a peace offering. Now, that's where we're going to stop. I stopped at verse 14. Not because the law of Nazarite, or the law of the Nazarite ends there. It doesn't. It continues on through verse 21, the end of the chapter. Alright, this is where, as a professional, I check to see if anyone is still awake. Okay, good. We got three. Number six is a particularly laborious undertaking. I know that. It is it is best to plunge forward into the shallowest of depths. Partitioning is the best approach. Before we uh, make my inevitable list, let me repeat from last week. Jesus God, the Word made flesh, chose to be Jesus of Nazareth. Nazar. The root word of Nazareth the root word of the, Na- of the Nazarite is Nazar. That's what Christ wanted to be. He could have been Jesus of Philadelphia or Fairbanks or Muldoon. He's God. He'd do whatever he wanted. But he wanted to make sure that you knew him as Jesus of Nazareth so that you would do what? You'd study number six. And you would study Samson. And you would study Samuel. There's evidence that Paul was a Nazarite. So my point is, is that you would begin to look at Nazarites all through the Bible. Nazar, Nazarite means to dedicate, to to consecrate. Let me take a diversion here because I get mad here. Jephthah's daughter. Let me read this. This just makes me want to vomit. Literally makes me sick. I, I don't know what to say. This is the commentator of the Bible that I use because of the large print New King James. And then I have to put up with the commentary, which makes me annoyed. Here's what he said. Here is indicated the pain felt by her father in having to take the life and sacrifice his only daughter to satisfy his pious but unwise pledge. So this idiot says that Jephthah, when he won a great battle, killed his own daughter as a child sacrifice to God. That's Judges 12. That's a common opinion. That is so horribly misguided, I don't know what, I cannot describe how dumb that is. I don't have a word that gets lower than the, the, ah, can't stand it. 
Jephthah's daughter was not sacrificed to God. She was consecrated to God, to temple service. So she's taken away from, I said it last week, taken outside of the Messianic line. So Jephthah is no longer in, he has no chance to be in the Messianic line, something that he wished to have. He was a devout man. And she begins, she is a fantastic uh, type of the church. And we'll get to that maybe sometime. She's dedicated after two months. Uh, she goes to be in the woods for two months. And she's memorialized for that by all of Israel. So, she's dedicated to a lifetime of service to YHVH. And, and so now, in front of Samson, who is dedicated, I have Jephthah's daughter, who is dedicated. They're obviously related. It's not coincidental that I would have the dedication of Jephthah's daughter, and then I would have the dedication or the Nazaretic vow of Samson by his parents. They're, it's literally the same story, in a sense. Jephthah's daughter is dedicated. Samson's dedicated because Samson, Samson is dedicated because of the evil of Israel. What is the evil of Israel? I'll, I'll jump ahead. God ends the killing of children. He hates the killing of innocent children. He loathes it. How can anyone think that he would want Jephthah to sacrifice his child daughter? It's just absolutely the most blasphemous, heretical, insulting. That I can, uh, and it's everywhere. Here's my warning to you, supposed theologians that have this indefensible view. Good luck. You're going to stand before God and call Him a child killer. Good for you. You have no idea what you're doing. Uh, You'll go running around in the Bible and. Find think places where you think God is evil. Man, oh man, do you have problems. Okay. Jesus fulfills the prophecies of Samson in Judges 13. We're going to get to that. In fact, it was Christ himself who comes to Samson's mother. Christ is, again, Jesus the Nazarene, Jesus the Nazarite. And he fulfills this prophecy that is not only number six, but is also Judges 13 that is referred to in Matthew 2.23. Specifically because of Judges 13 and number six, Matthew 2.23 is in Scripture. So, number six, Judges 13, Matthew 2.23, immediately note that they are interlocked. And so that you find one, you find them all. Now, with that, that's our beginning. So what do we know? What are the known knowns of the Nazaretic law? Let's take it on. So I'll get rid of the six barren women, seven miraculous births. And let's start with this. When an Israelite takes the vow of the Nazarite, either a man or a woman, and they become consecrated or dedicated to YHVH, Yahweh, Jehovah, the unpronounceable, ineffable name, then they must separate. So you see this separation. So start asking yourself, what is the purpose, what is the meaning of the separation? 
Remembering that Christ himself is the Nazarene, the Nazarite. should inject here that the vow has, has this word attached to it. It's not really called the vow or the oath. It's more correctly called the wonder of the Nazaritic, or the wonder of the Nazarene, or the wonder of the Nazarite. It's a wonder. The word for vow in the Hebrew is closely related to wonder. So, again, Nazaritic wonder. And during this allotted certain time of the consecration of the vow taker, the the one who is wanting to be a Nazarene or a Nazarite, that person now for this certain amount of time is to abstain from wine or anything that is similar to wine. So ask yourself now, why is this here? God has put this here. This is a portrayal of Christ. It is integrated immediately with Samson. So ask yourself, why is it that a Nazarite can't have any wine? And he, and all things that come from the vine or the vineyard, from grapes, you must abstain. So if you're a Nazarite, in most was a limited time, but not so obviously with Samson. Samson was wombed to death, makes him very unusual. But all things that come from the vine, from grapes, from fresh grapes and vinegar and raisins and seeds, anything dried, the obvious question then before us is, why does God prohibit grapes for the Nazarite? Why this prohibition from anything of the grape vine? What's the teaching here? What is God saying? What does the grape vine represent? What does it symbolize in this context? Is this restricted to wild grapes or domestic grapes? Is there a determination? Is it all grapes or just the grape vine? That is found in, that is harvested or is part of the social structure. Is this fermentation? Is the reason God's saying this is I don't want you to be anywhere around fermentation. So you start analyzing this prohibition of great products. The Nazarite is also to deny, forbear the cutting of his hair. Can't drink wine. Can't cut your hair. No razor. And avoid all defilement with a corpse or a dead body. That makes him unclean. Now, immediately, whenever you think touching a dead body and, un- and the unclean aspect of it, you recognize that Christ did this, didn't he? He touched dead bodies. He also touched lepers. He made himself supposedly is impossible for God to be unclean, but it, people would, that watched him would assume that he was making himself unclean, not knowing that he is God himself. So you have these three aspects. He, will, he has to abstain from wine. He cannot take a razor to his head, and he must not be defiled with a corpse. He shall not make himself contaminated with a corpse, even if it's his father, his mother, his brother, or his sister who has died. So if one of his family members dies, he cannot touch them. He can't bury his own family. can't touch a corpse in any way. I hope you recognized that when I was reading it. And if the Nazarite is sudden, suddenly, accidentally, or of unknown circumstances made unclean with a dead body, he then must shave his head on the seventh day 
of his now cleansing period. So essentially his vow has been interrupted and he must return to the beginning. So if a Nazarite has gone for however long he intended to go, five years, five months, two weeks, and he becomes in contact with a dead body, now he has to go back to the beginning, start his vow all over again. He must return, restart the process, the entire time period repeated. He must make atonement. Offerings must be sacrificed because the Nazarite has touched a dead body or came in contact in any way that defiles him. And it said clearly, because the Nazarite has done what? He sinned. Touching a dead body, God declares, is sin for a Nazarite. How is that the case? Why are these the three? What does it mean? You will not be surprised by how many commentators are sympathetic to the Nazarite here. They think that God is unfair. They do. They lament that he's got to start completely over because of a sudden, unforeseen contact with death. And the implication is that uh, this is unfair. And you immediately should begin to go, okay. You will read a lot of opinions that God should have made provisions for unintended involuntary adulteration of the Nazarite. You, none of you, would ever such, uh, think such a thing because to think such a thing is blasphemy. It's heresy. God is omniscient. The oath, the wonder of the Nazarene is perfect in design. It's holy. It's good. It, it can't possibly be unfair. It is without, without blemish. Now, lastly for this part in number six, this list of number six today. And I, I know that it, I'm barely touching it, but that's because I, I recognize that it can't be given to you all at once. No one would stay for the buffet. It'd just be. Look at the beautiful sun today. It's a beautiful hot day of what? 53? Is it warmer than that now? It was pretty cold this morning. Yeah, very cold. We had noatic rain up here for you folks on the internet. What we call that. Does not compare to what you have to deal with, but for us, we're miserable. As always, this is a place of great misery. Alaska, never visit here. Let's see if that works. <laughs> anyway, lastly, the Nazaretic law. Note the male lamb and the female lamb that are without blemish in their first years. One's a burnt offering, the other is a sin offering. Two lambs. Offered for the Nazarite sin. Okay. I refer you to Genesis 3. Okay. I will assume for those who were here last Sunday, both of you, that you caught my emphasis in all of this on suddenness and made the connection to Samson and the young roaring lion. If a Nazarite suddenly, accidentally comes in contact with a dead body, we got to have Two lambs, seven days of cleansing, and start all over again. So you, I hope, because of that suddenness, you went to uh, 
Judges 14 and made the connection to Samson and the young roaring lion that came upon him surprised him, which Samson tore to pieces in the vineyard of Timnah with his mother and father. So here's Samson, and he tore it apart. The indication is, is he grabbed it by its rear legs and ripped it to pieces. So this is a man, as you might have heard me say, is a small Jewish man. The Philistines were astonished, could not figure out how he's doing this. And part of the reason they could not figure it out is he had bore no physical capabilities. I'll defend that position as time goes by. That might somewhere be on the internet. Is it uh, SUP? SUP does not exist. Whoever said that? People say that I throw my voice very, very well. Did you know that? That is not his wife, Peter, in the back. Anyway, Judges 14, 1 through 6, you know this leads to the honeybees and the honey and the riddle of Samson, something that we are moving towards, moving as a relative term. I did rush through parts of Judges 14 last Sunday. Think of this today as a little bit of a correction of that cursory glance, but just a little bit. Because you see, these vineyards of Timnah are an important component. They're an item of interest. They're vineyards, and I have a Nazarite. Vineyards in Nazarite, we have problems. But he's got off, so we'll have to really understand what Samson is doing here. And also the fact that this, this lion is killed in the, in the proximity of the mother and father. The father and mother might be affected by vineyards in contact with a dead lion. Grapes and death, right? And you might ask, well, when are we going to get to Judges 15? What happens in Judges 15? Did you read ahead? How many men does Samson kill? And how does he kill them? He kills them in close combat, close hand-to-hand combat. Here's a man that takes a bone and kills a thousand men with it. How close has he got to be to kill somebody with a bone? What are the chances that you are touching a dead body when you're killing a thousand of them? He kills 2,030. How many does he tear apart? If he can tear a lion apart, can he tear a human being apart? Absolutely, he can. How fearful of an adversary is this deliverer of Israel? We can't solve Judges 14 or Judges 15 without knowing Jephthah's daughter, Judges 12. Don't really have time for that. We do have to get to Judges 13, which is the angel of the Lord, Jesus Christ himself, God himself. So that's where we're going to go. Judges 13 now. Now, moving on. I'll give you a chance to get there while I brace myself. Okay, 13.1. Again, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So we start out with Israel doing evil, and I'm going to tell you right now, I'll skip ahead because I started already, that evil is killing children. If you think that God is going to allow nations to kill children for any length of time, you are sadly mistaken. He is not going to do it. Again, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines for forty years. Now, there was a certain man from Zorah of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, 
And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord. Who's this? The angel of the Lord. Who is that? That's Jesus Christ himself. The angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Indeed, now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Now, therefore, please be careful, he says to the woman, not to drink wine or similar drink and not to eat anything unclean. For behold, here's where I have to do my behold emphatic maneuver. Getting harder. Behold, you shall not, or you shall conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. He starts out as a Nazarite. He has no time when he's not a Nazarite. That's unusual. It tells you that Samson's very, very important. Christ himself comes to deliver this information. Christ himself. Have we ever had a case where an, uh, an angel, not the angel, not Christ, comes to a woman, tells her that she's going to bear a son? Christ comes to tell Samson's mother. Who came to tell Mary? Start paying attention to that because this becomes an interesting point. And he shall begin to deliver Israel. Ah, the Bible and and I deliverer, deliver, deliverer. Did I get that right? Is it E before I? Is it? Who knows? Let me put the. I guess I could look here and see how they do it. Oh, I don't have an E in there, do I? No, I do. Deliver. Okay. Okay. Deliver. Whatever. Now I'm in trouble. Deliverance is a key component of the book. Betrayal isn't there. When you see the Judas betrayed Christ, there's not there. The theme of the scripture is deliverance, a deliverer, delivering. Christ is delivered. You can't betray omniscient God. You'll find delivering all the time. He's the deliverer of Israel who is delivered to the Pharisees and Pilate, if you will. Understand this delivering theme. He shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hands of the Philistines. So the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his countenance was like the countenance of the angel of God. Very awesome. That's the word for the days of awe, Yom Kippur, right? And I, but I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. And he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. Now drink no wine or similar drink, nor eat anything unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O oh my Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come to us again. Teach us what we shall do for the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came to the woman again. 
as she was sitting in the field, but Manoah, Manoah, her husband was not with her. Then the woman ran in haste and told her husband and said to him, Look, the man has come to me, the, the man who came to me the other day has just now appeared to me. So Manoah arose and followed his wife. When he came to the man, he said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. Manoah said, Now let your words come to pass. What will be the boy's rule of life and his work? So the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat anything that comes from the vine, nor she eat, nor may she drink wine or similar drink, nor eat anything unclean. All that I commanded her, let her observe. Then he said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you, and we will prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Though you detain me, I will not eat your food, but if you offer a burnt offering, you must offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know he was the angel of the Lord. So Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name? And when your words, that when your words come to pass, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is a wonder? Your Bible might have wonderful. So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it upon the rock to the Lord, and he did a wondrous thing while Manoah and his wife looked on. It happened as the flame went up towards heaven from the altar. The angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. When Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground. When the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife, then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah says to his wife, we shall surely die because we have seen God. But his wife said to him, if the Lord had desired to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering from our hands, nor would he have given, shown us all these things, nor would he have told us such things as these at this time. So the woman bore a son, called his name Samson, and the child grew, and the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to move upon him. <coughs> and then it mentions that he's a Danite. <coughs> Excuse me. So there we go. Now, once again, we've got to know what are our known knowns. I recognize this is a brutal assembling, assembling of information, but it's necessary. Again, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Again, they're doing evil. And because of that particular evil, the Lord places Israel under the rule of the Philistines for 40 years. Obvious question, what evil is it? I think the case that it is killing and sacrificing of children is, is obvious. It should be noted that the book of Judges records six previous times that Israel does evil in the sight of the Lord. This is the seventh in Judges here at 13.1. One of the common factors of the evil is the worshiping of Baal, forgetting that the Lord their God is their God and serving the Baals. In the Baals, of course, is Moloch. And it says in Judges 3.8, when this started, that the anger of the Lord becomes hot. And I am of the opinion that Israel would return to the practice of killing children on the altars of Baal. 
of the hands of Moloch. And God ends it. That's what he does. He raises up a judge. He raised up Gideon. He raises up Samson. Samuel knows Samson. They are contemporary. And he does this to avenge the children. The progression of evil continually manifests itself in the killing of children. It's something that cannot be ignored. You can tell when evil is rising because when it does, children die. That's one of our indications that the time is short. And why is this so? It's something that cannot be ignored. Why is it? Why would Israel follow the pagans into the slaughter of children? Why, here's a better question, why does Satan seek the death of children? You see it all throughout the Bible. Herod, for example. Let me reword that. Why does the blood of children have this kind of importance to Satan. Why does Satan desire the shed blood of children? What's he gained by this? What's his plan? Let me ask you this way. What is the destiny of the child? The child is forever eternally saved. Why does Satan want another why does Satan want a mother, want a father, to kill their own child? Think that through. What happens to the mother and the father? What happens to the adult that kills children? How many of them are redeemable? What's the percentage, do you think, of a child killer? Now, some are, I will tell you that. But I will say to you that it is rare. Satan gets an adult to kill a child. That is a profound change. And that human beings, uh, what do I want to call it? Psychological condition. That's a darkness. God will redeem darkness. says so. He does so, but I think Satan understands that it's a very difficult path to return from. Anyway, Israel is repeating this great evil that that the hot anger of the Lord is demonstrated against. And God intervenes. And this time, God himself, the angel of the Lord, God in the flesh, creator God, Jesus God, Jesus Christ himself, comes to a Danite woman. Comes to a Danite. That becomes very important. Who are the Danites? What do the Danites do? Where are the Danites? Uh, A Danite woman who was childless, who was barren, and Christ tells her to adhere to the Numbers 6 law of the Nazarite. Would she recognize that she is being told information that is from number six? Absolutely she would. Do we understand it when we read it? No, we don't. That's a shame for us. But she would know immediately when he said no wine, 
no razor, dead body, she would go, this is number six. And Christ tells her to adhere to the number six law of the Nazarite. Drink no wine. And do this because, behold, you're going to conceive a son, barren woman. A deliverer of Israel will arise. And then he says this to her, and no razor shall come upon his head. And the fact that he is a deliverer of Israel, she knows that the deliverer of Israel could very well be who? The Messiah, the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman is the deliverer. She would automatically think, I might be the woman who gives birth to the seed of the woman. Now, she's not. But she might thought, and she would certainly consider it. She's being told by the angel of the Lord that you're going to conceive a deliverer of Israel. What did you do to that baby, Susie? Okay, she's happy now. Okay, good. Those of you on the internet, we have babies in the auditorium. It's not just because they're related to me. It does help. In case you were wondering. It raises the congregational uh, numerical dynamic. That's our whole point. We count every single child in the parking lot or in the church now. That's our plan. We turn none of them away. Okay, where was I? Behold, you shall conceive a son, a deliverer of Israel. That means this is, this is either the seed of the woman or this is a type of the seed of the woman, which clearly Samson is a type of Christ. And Christ says to her, no razor shall come upon his head. He will be a Nazarite from birth. And notice that Christ says, no razor. Of the three things, no razor. He could have said no grapes. He should have said, he could have said no contact with death, but he doesn't. He says, no razor shall come upon his head. Jesus tells a woman, again, no razor. And obviously this has great meaning, as you know from reading ahead, Samson and Delilah. Samson does have a razor come to his head, doesn't he? So what does this mean? Does God know? Is he outside of time? Yeah. Is his name a wonder? Absolutely. What does that mean? It has something to do with time, creation of it. We'll get to that in a minute. Does he know that Samson will have his head shorn? Yes. It's omniscient God. So what does he mean? No razor shall come upon his head. The woman in the, in the telling of her husband, verse 7, she doesn't quite word it this way, does she? She says, she omits no razor. She mentions only the wine in contact with death. And why? That seems to be a little unusual thought process. God himself, the angel of the Lord, Jesus Christ, tells her, no razor shall come upon his head, and she does not repeat it verbatim to her husband. She, in fact, says, womb to death. Christ did not even say death. He said womb. She only mentions the aspects that concern her, her Nazarite oath, if you will. Except for the womb. The Danite husband. And again, why is a Danite even here? Where is the Danite? Where is she? 
She's in Judah. Where are the rest of the Danites? Because there's not hardly any there. They're gone. We'll have to know why they left. They went up north. They eventually, uh, some will say that they were captured by the Assyrians and probably somewhere. But they migrated north. But not these two Danites. They remained. Anyway, the husband, got to hurry now. The husband prays for the second coming of the angel of the Lord. He prays for the second coming of Christ. He says, please have the angel return to us. That's the return of Christ, right? And Christ returns. Came to the woman a second time. And the woman runs in haste to find her husband because she's alone in a field. Let me repeat that a little bit. Recap that. A woman neglects what Christ says, adds some to it, fails to precisely quote the words of God, and she is alone when she's when she's told this, and she runs to find her husband. Just saying. Where are we now? Right? The husband asks this question, are you the man that spoke to this woman? And that just surprises me. I hope that surprised you. Are you the man that spoke to this woman? Let me ask a couple of easy questions. I hope they're easy. What does the angel of the Lord look like? His countenance. So he comes up. He sees a man. It's the angel of the Lord. So it's God. This is a pre-incarnate Christ or a Christology or a Christophany or a Theophany. And she even describes him. She says his countenance is incredible. It's astonishing. We know what he looks like. We have Revelation 1, 12 through 18. What's he look like? We have Daniel 7. What's he look like? He's bright white. He has white hair. He's, it looks like he's on fire. He's so bright, he's impossible to even look at. Matthew 17, 2, Mark 9, 2, Transfiguration. I would think it's obvious that if I walk up and I see this guy that looks like this, I don't need to say, are you the guy that talked to my wife? Clear, what? There's some other guy that looks like you? No, there is no other body that looks like him. So why does he ask that? It might be the biggest duh in all of the Old Testament. Are you the one that talked to my wife? So we'll have to investigate. Who else looks like this? Who did the husband think this bright white person was that was standing there? There must be a reason for this question. In any event, Christ answers. And what does he say? I am. And he repeats the Nazaritic vow as if it applies to the woman. No wine, nothing unclean. And then we have this young goat. Do you want a young goat? He says, we'll get you a young goat here. Is that the best you got is a young goat? Why does he offer a young goat? These are Danites that did not migrate with the other Danites that stayed behind in Judah. They already have an experience with the angel of the Lord, but they're not sure who it is. But he comes to them and says, you are probably going... They they interpret it this way, I'm sure. You, woman, are going to be the mother of the deliverer of Israel. That's the Messiah to them. They're expecting history to end at any time, just like we are. 
Messiah had not yet come. What is your name? And he says, my name is a wonder. It's beyond understanding. And that's where the I am, the creator of time, is beyond understanding. Creation of time is beyond understanding. Being outside of time, beyond understanding. Being infinite, beyond understanding. We will never, as finite people, understand infinity. And then the man and the woman have this discussion. He says, we shall surely die because we have seen God. Why do you die when you see God? He was convinced of it. We have seen God. We will surely die. Why is, it, why is that? But the woman thinks, it's, thinks it through. She immediately knows that he's wrong. There's your moral for the story. If the Lord had desired to kill us, he would not have accepted... I can just imagine the conversation. If the Lord wanted to kill us, we'd be dead. We're not dead. So we're not going to die. Besides, he told me, I am the mother of the deliverer of Israel. That's pretty good news, don't you think? Dummy. That's kind of how I think it went. And then the woman and the man see the ascending of Jesus Christ in the offering of the young goat. So the goat is offered, the flame comes, and they watch the ascension of Christ. So there we go. Now we have foundation, enough of the foundation to take on the honeybees and the riddle. I have two minutes left. Let's see. Can't dance. I think I've made that obvious over the years. Wouldn't dance. John Wayne. Ever see John Wayne dance? I say no. Okay. We're going to stop there next week. On to the hard part, which is Judges 14. I don't have time to finish any of that today or even begin it, so I'll just leave it. We'll pick it up next week.